0: Then we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Friends, my name is Evan Skelton. Again, if, this is your, if you're just now joining us in person or online, I'm one of the pastors here at Bayless, and it really is a privilege to open up God's word with you. Now I recognize many of us are new to this. And so we, I hope you see an experience from our church. Our hope is to make this as simple as possible for you to participate in our service, but more importantly, to make sense of the grace that's found in Jesus. So that's why we've included the Bible underneath your, your seat, these cards by which you can uh, ask the questions that are on your mind. Made ourselves available at the end of service. We'll try and clarify terms as they come up, but there's no way of avoiding it. What we're doing here is strange. It's not like anything else that you see take place in the rest of the world and that's a good thing it's a good thing christians in many ways they live lives that are strange they live lives that are in allegiance to one lord and one savior a king that we hope in and so it's good for us even once a week for us to experience something strange wonderfully strange that forms us to love him and obey him but again If you are new here, if you have questions, or perhaps you've been around for some time, you've always wondered, why do we do that thing? Please, there is no stupid question. We would love to to fill in the gaps for you. Please grab me or another leader. Look for somebody who's wearing a hello tag, um, or just grab somebody who's sitting next to you and they could point you in the right direction. But we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. And if I can, before we get into it, I want to make one plug, again, uh, as Chris uh, did uh, before our service, for our discipleship class, our Making Disciples class. We've never done something like this, and we're really excited to do so. In uh, two weeks, again, we're going to be, I recognize, here's what the hope is, is we're doing a series right now on Making Disciples. If you're new to joining us, that's okay. This is a series, really, where you get an inside scoop on, you get an inside look on what it is that Christians care about most, why the church itself exists, what we're trying to accomplish here on Sunday mornings, and that's about making disciples, as well as what we do throughout the week. And there's many questions, hopefully, if we've been effective in our teaching, and that, the hope is that you would be asking questions of, okay, what's my next step? What, can I, what should I be doing in light of this? Feeling, okay, I probably should take a next step in caring for the spiritual growth and maturity of those around me, but I'm not sure what that entirely looks like. Well, one of the, one, a really exciting next step that we're excited to make available to you is this class. Really, recognize 12 weeks is a, is a big commitment, but we want to keep that bar high because the Bible raises the bar of that for every Christian. And so on Sunday mornings in two weeks from 9 to 10 a.m., we'll, if, uh, if you are interested in joining us for this class, we'll be meeting downstairs in our fellowship hall to get to the real nuts and bolts of how do you go about making disciples with others. And whether you've been here in this church for five minutes or for 50 years, we uh, think that God's word has much to teach all of us. And so we're excited to do it. I'll be teaching it in conjunction with one of our other elders, Larry Babb. And so I hope you will sign up for that class today um, on the, you'll see a board with a place where you can just write your name and contact information um, uh, for the next two weeks, and then in two weeks we'll be Starting that class again Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and it's going to be I'm going to have a ton of fun. Hopefully you will as well. So, but nonetheless, this series uh, we're calling "Follow Me," a series of making about making disciples of Jesus Christ, helping others to follow Jesus as I am because this mission uh, has been given to us actually by Jesus himself. He's not left churches to search for why they exist, to come up with clever and unique mission statements, although sometimes that that will happen and is helpful. Jesus has boiled down why we exist to making disciples. It may take place outside the church among those who are not yet Christians or inside the church among those who are, who were growing to understand and apply the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with. But if you are a Christian, You share this joy, this task with us of making disciples for the glory of God and the joy of others. And over the last two weeks, we considered two questions together. Why do we make disciples? Well, we make disciples because God deserves worship and discipleship is all about helping others to worship God because that's the final state of all things. You want to be on the right side of history? Well, the right side of history will be those who are worshiping God forever Who is a disciple is the second question, though, and that really comes down to those words, follow me, of our series. What does a disciple do? A a disciple is following Jesus Christ, recognizing that that does come with cost, but it really can't, that invitation comes to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow him as their Lord. What is a disciple? It's one who's following Jesus and inviting others to do the same. But still, this comes to the third question, the real nuts and bolts of what we're about, and that's, how do we make disciples? To be honest, I think some of us are uh, not so sure why we're spending a lot of time on this. I know many Christians, actually, who aren't all that sure that making disciples disciples is something they're really cut out for. Uh, They don't really know the Bible that well. They don't really uh, feel all that mature. And just to be honest, there are so many other things for us to care about in our lives, right? There's so many other things that we could be distracted about, other tensions that are weighing on our shoulders. Helping someone with their spiritual growth seems like something that would be better to leave to professionals. After all, what, what do you do when, uh, again, in my, okay, so I was trying to replace an outlet yesterday um, and uh, it didn't go so well. It took about two and a half hours, so now I'm gonna need to ask for somebody's help, someone like Jamie, right, so to come and help me out so I don't electrocute myself, which Grace would appreciate. We feel like this when we come to points of time. I don't know how to move forward with this, so perhaps I need to call in a professional. Isn't there a program for this sort of thing? Isn't there a good book that they could read? Isn't that what we pay you, the pastor, for? It turns out, actually, that God does have a program for making disciples, And it's his people, including, if you are a Christian, people like you. turns out God, again, intends to make disciples through his own people. But still, I know many of us come with all sorts of hesitations and fears on this, and so we've decided to split this question, how do we make disciples, into two parts. Considering, first, how we make disciples inside the church, first, And then next week, looking at how do we make disciples outside the church. So, how do we make disciples first inside the church is where we're going today. And I hope you will keep your Bibles open to Colossians 1. I want you to make sure that what I'm saying is what God would have me say. I'm constrained by this just as much as you are. This is the words of life, not my two cents. And so, I hope you will be looking in verse 28 through 29. Looking at these verses, I want to ask four questions. First, who is disciple making about? Second, what does it look like? Third, what, why risk it at all? And fourth, how is any of this possible? These questions aren't going to make, again, much sense until we get into it, so let's start with the first. Who is disciple-making about? You see, when it comes to making disciples, we need to have a clear understanding of this central question before we start doing anything. In fact, one of the most destructive things I have found personally, especially in my early growth as a Christian, was getting this question backwards. I know it may surprise you, but I'm actually not all that certain of when I became a Christian. Um, I know that. Many of us, we, we, we have it written in our Bibles. We knew the moment we came down to, to the front we, when we were maybe baptized or when we, uh, we had the um, tear-jerking moment around the campfire as a youth or whatever it was. I don't know that I have that particular moment, but I wonder if it was uh, in high school. You know, I was raised in a Christian home, attended a Christian school, and was baptized when I was six years old. But I don't think it was until high school that I finally understood the gospel, and I think Christ might have saved me. That's a story for another time, but around that time, I began to spend a lot of time with my youth pastor. And even outside of our Wednesday youth meetings, we'll call him Steve. You would find me throughout the week hanging out in Steve's office or in his home, In the eyes, you see, of of an insecure high schooler like me, who struggled to make lasting friendships, and like many, with a sense of my own identity, trying to figure out who I was, Steve just seemed so cool. He seemed so self-assured. I wanted to spend as much time with him as possible. His earrings, his tattoos, his screamo music, uh, he was easy to like and fun to be around, and our youth group grew because of it. In many ways, I wanted to be just like Steve, and the more I hung around Steve, the more like him I became. I started using the same phrases that he used, I read the same books that he did, I tried to get into the same kind of music, I just couldn't, uh, but then I even planned on getting a, a, a tattoo sleeve uh, when I graduated, when I was older, old enough, in case you're wondering, I never did, but nonetheless, uh, I, uh, as time went on, I also uh, grew tremendously in a sense of insecurity, You see, despite how hard I tried, I could never be Steve. It was like wearing clothes that didn't quite fit, right? And I, again, became terribly, terribly insecure because of it. After all, being like Steve was bound up with what it meant to be a Christian. And if this is what following Jesus looked like, I was taking my first steps as a disciple, if this is what following Jesus looked like, then I was falling Very far short. Now don't get me wrong, even today I'm grateful for this relationship. Steve had a huge influence on the kind of dad and husband that I wanted to become upon my desire to share the gospel with people who don't agree with my convictions. But as important as this relationship was, to be honest, I came to know less about Jesus during that time than I did about Steve And neither of us, when it came to it, could stand up under that kind of pressure. One of the reasons, friends, that you may be hesitant when it comes to making disciples or making more followers of Jesus, helping someone, is because you think disciple-making is about helping people to be like you. It's not actually about you at all. Well, in a sense it is. I mean, no one wants to learn beside someone who's a complete hypocrite, but m- making disciples is first and foremost actually about Jesus. Notice verse-, verse 28 in Paul's words. What does he say? Him we proclaim. Well, who is this him? It's Jesus Christ. Reading between the lines of this letter, it seems that the Colossians, the audience that Paul is writing to, these believers in a place called Colossae, were getting this backwards, though, You see, they were surrounded by teachers, new teachers, who suggested that Jesus, while important, wasn't all that sufficient or even that impressive when it came to being, uh, experiencing real maturity. If you wanted to be a really spiritual person, you needed to graduate, go beyond Jesus, according to them. There was tremendous pressure upon the Colossians to add something else to Jesus, and Paul had no time for it. Just listen to how Paul describes Jesus in a few verses earlier. If you look at verses 15 through 20, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, Jesus is the point for Paul. Jesus is the hero. He is the only one, ultimately, that is worth emulating, worth following, worth modeling your life upon. Making disciples, when it comes down to it, is about Jesus Christ. That might sound really straightforward, I I realize, but it turns out to be extraordinarily practical. I want to give you three reasons why practically this changes the lives that we we live. First, if discipleship is about Jesus, I don't need to be the expert. The reason, again, some of us can't imagine investing in the life of another Christian, seeking to do them some spiritual good— is because we think it's all about the experiences I've had, the books that I've read, the kind of advice I can offer, what I've been through. Others of us, we we just can't wait to pass on all that we know. We can't figure out why people don't want to know it. After all, don't they know how great it would be to learn from someone like me? This kind of attitude, friends, actually turns out to be detrimental to disciple-making. Discipleship is not... About you, recounting your greatest hits or your top tips. Instead, the prerequisite to making disciples is that Jesus is the center of it, not you. I don't care how cool you think you are, how much experience or education you do or do not have, you cannot compare with Jesus. And even as Paul had no qualms about calling people to imitate him, it is only as he imitated someone else, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 puts it this way, be imitators of me. Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, be imitators of me, but he doesn't stop there, as I am of Christ. And so here's what this means. Uh, We can freely tell people, other Christians, if you see some good stuff in me, the kind of stuff that makes you think of Jesus, follow that. You're probably going to get a lot of baggage, to be honest, a lot of not good stuff along the way with it. Hopefully you'll learn firsthand from me how to repent when you point it out, but Jesus is way more impressive than I will ever be. Follow me as I follow him. Again, the prerequisite to making disciples is that Jesus is the center of it, not your favorite author or pastor or podcast, and certainly not yourself. Turns out if you make Jesus the center of it, it it takes the pressure off of you to be the expert. That's not all it does. If Jesus is the center, if discipleship is about Jesus, everyone is a student. A discipleship relationship which has Jesus Jesus at the center will, in other words, be a two-way street. Even as you may advise and correct someone, you will learn much from the other person. You can be discipled, if you will, even as you are discipling. In fact, I know many who took the initiative, and this goes in my life, to start spending intentional time with another believer, expecting to be the more mature one, only to discover they very much were not, finding out that they were being discipled even more than they were discipling. I have to say this, uh, particularly of a couple men in my life, Drew and Chris, we get to spend some intentional time every other week with one another, study, opening up God's word, praying for one another, being honest about the real tensions and struggles that we, have, that we have. I'll tell you why I look forward to that so much. Not because I get to unload on them all of Evan's top tips because they don't need it. And thankfully, they know me honestly enough to know, like, to push past that but because it reawakens my love for Christ, because I am sharpened and shaped. I, I learn to move, I, I move forward in my faith. I persevere with greater strength. I, I see that I really need to grow, and I have a brother to do it beside. The prerequisite, again, is that we are students not of one another, but of Jesus himself. To use another illustration, discipleship is less teacher student than it and and it's not expert and greenhorn. It is more fellow beggar pointing another beggar to the bread. And when this is the posture, God will form both participants in in profound ways. Number three, if discipleship is about Jesus, then you have him in common. Let me put this differently. If Jesus is the center, not you, you will have things in common with that other person even if you share nothing else. You will have one central thing in common even if nothing about your lives looks similar to the other person. Because you share a common Savior you're learning from, because you are both students of that Savior, you can learn from someone who's very different from you. Certainly, there's great value in learning from those who have been through what you are going through. In many ways, our deepest friendships are with those who seem to see the world that we do. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes this as encountering someone and experiencing, you too? You think about things that way too? That's some of our deepest friendships. It's normal for me to ask another dad how to do this dad thing. It's normal for me to ask another pastor, how do I do this pastor thing? But the task of discipleship frees us to pursue and learn from those who are also not like us. In fact, I can tell you from personal experience that some of the people who have made the most profound impact on me are those who are also the most unlike me. Because the point, again, is not to make the person like you. Only to imitate you as you imitate Christ. Christ means Democrats can learn from Republicans. Older saints can learn from younger ones. A woman with a master's degree can learn from a woman who lacks a high school diploma. The man who grew up in white suburbia can learn from a black man from North City. Single people can learn from married ones. In fact, a really healthy church will be a church where you see these kind of friendships spring up all the time. Friends, when it comes to discipleship, you don't have to be the expert. You can expect to be impacted even as you influence someone else, even if the only thing you have in common is Jesus himself, because Jesus is the point, not you. But this leads then to the second question, what does this look like? After all, even as I might tell you, go and make disciples even at this point, it might not all seem that straightforward. I might as well have given you a tub of Legos and said, uh, build me a scale model of the International Space Station. Okay, I mean like that's how many of us feel when it comes to something like this. What, what is our next step? Especially when we have never experienced anything like this. We're not sure what it would look like. And I'm sorry to say that many people can grow up in the church around Christians and be anonymous for decades. Some of you have never had this kind of relationship with another Christian. It's no wonder that we're intimidated. So what would it actually look like? Well, I want to tell you it's easier than you expect. In some ways it will be harder, but in many ways it is easier than you expect. Again, you don't have to be the expert. And Paul breaks it down for us into two categories, two actions that he's going to mention actually in chapter three, verse 16. He's going to use these exact same words when he speaks to the church saying, this model you see in me Replicate among yourselves. Do these things among one another. He uses these same two actions. Him we proclaim, he says, and adds two components. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I want to take both of these phrases in turn. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. I actually want to take them in reverse order. First, discipleship is teaching. Discipleship is teaching. Teaching is the bread and butter, if you will, of making disciples. Mark Dever, author and pastor, puts it this way. At its core, discipling is teaching. We teach with words. We teach all the words that Jesus taught his disciples and all the words of the Bible. At its core, discipleship is teaching. However, it's important to understand what is meant by teaching. After all, some of us have in mind a Sunday school teacher or perhaps what I do on Sunday morning, maybe a TED talk, maybe something your professor or your teacher does. Others of us have in mind PowerPoints and lecture halls, possibly full of people furiously taking notes, raising their hands and asking questions. I, I think few of us could not invent a more terrifying nightmare. But many, in many ways, this teaching Yeah, I have to say first, there is a a very large category in the Bible for this formal, structured, often public kind of teaching. In fact, the reason that we devote so much of our corporate worship, what we are doing on Sunday mornings, to teaching or soon to our classes on Sunday morning or, um, again, to the books out in the lobby for you to read and reflect on during the week— It's because God has gifted his church with teachers whose role it is to explain and apply the scriptures for us, who can cast the direction where we are all going together and the common expectations we must have of one another to get there. Teaching can and often does take place in a formal, structured way, but I think the lion's share of teaching, the most frequent teaching that takes place in a healthy church turns out to be informal and unstructured, the kind of teaching that every believer does with another believer, even those who may not have the so-called gift or passion for teaching. Teaching takes place not only in the classroom or the lecture hall, but in the coffee shop, in the hospital room, at the bedside or the dinner table, on the drive across town or in the break room, while folding laundry with another person or taking trips to the grocery store over weeknight desserts, or during Saturday morning yard work. This kind of teaching takes those average and ordinary tasks and shares them with someone. Teaching doesn't just take place in a sermon or speech, but as you open up in that shared space space about your marriage, about your loneliness, as you pray for someone when your life is just hard, as you sing and discuss the Bible over a meal with your family, as you discipline your son or daughter, as you love and encourage your unbelieving spouse, as you pray at the bedside of those you love, as you repent with others. Discipleship takes place whenever we help someone not only understand God's word, but to love and walk in step with him in the real situations of life. Whenever we weave God's word into the fabric of another's life and receive the same. Discipleship takes place whenever you help one another in the fight for love and holiness. Discipling, in a sense, lasts all week. Seizing the everyday opportunities and events, the precious little time that we have, seizing that for supernatural ends. It sees opportunities everywhere. Let's see, but no, let, second, uh, discipleship is a warning. It's a warning. You can probably tell, but I, I want to actually press together our, our understanding of discipleship with our understanding of biblical friendship. Well, and you'll know that the real friendships, the deepest kind of friendships, don't just know the good stuff in your life, do you? Do they? the stuff that we're comfortable with everyone seeing. No, the greatest friendships, the kind of relationships I think we all long for are those that know the good and the bad and have been honest with us about it and still they've stuck around. Discipleship requires the honest recognition that we are not fine the way that we are. That sin deceives us in ways that I cannot see. Otherwise, it wouldn't be deceiving me, would it? It blinds us from ourselves. That sin holds the steering wheel in my life more than I recognize. Discipleship requires the honest recognition that both parties need to grow, not just one. And we need someone kind enough and courageous enough to help us see how. To steal an uh, illustration again from Mark Dever, joining a church is like throwing paint on an invisible man. Because a healthy church... The kind of relationships we find there will cause us to see things in ourselves we had never seen before. Prior to those kind of relationships, we could have been the invisible man. Once you enter into that kind of friendship, you begin to see things about yourself you did not see, and some will make you very uncomfortable. It's like Grace and I, we tell married couples in our premarital counseling, if you weren't sure you were a sinner before marriage, just wait till you get married. And if you want to be really certain, throw kids into the mix. That goes in many ways for discipleship as well. Discipleship reveals just how much of a mess you and I actually are. And it requires the kind of love which is strong enough to risk awkwardness, even being taken the wrong way, because we all need transformation. We all need to become more than we are. And transformation in some ways comes through inviting tension, even conflict into the mix. I mean, after all, friends, think about the greatest changes that have taken place in your life. Didn't they come through experiencing some sort of tension, some lack, some conflict? That's the only thing that actually ends up redirecting us, changing our course. Discipleship, again, sometimes will involve this warning, but this doesn't give us permission to be jerks about it. After all, some of us love to tell other people that they are wrong and how, especially when this comes to a spouse. Maybe it's just me, unfortunately. Uh, After all, in Ephesians 4, uh, it tells us we actually need to speak the truth in love with compassion, and what our passage calls wisdom. Not as those who are experts or legalists telling others to clean yourself up without lifting a finger to help. Speaking the truth must always be done in love. Still, and I think this is actually our tendency, friends, out of what we call love, some of us keep from speaking the truth at all. Steve Migdley. Midgley, I'm sorry, gives us some examples of what this can sound like. Maybe you're like me and have said these things to yourself before. I couldn't possibly say that to them. What if they take it the wrong way? How could I talk to them about that? It's just too embarrassing. It's not convenient to get involved now. Maybe another time in my life, I can see that it will be really demanding. Someone else is bound to say something. There will be someone who is closer to the situation than I am. I can't. I won't. I shouldn't. And the examples of excuses go on and on and on. Just as the truth must be spoken in love, love must be demonstrated by speaking the truth. This doesn't mean, and this is important friends, and I'm saying this to myself, this doesn't mean bringing up every little thing that irritates me. But when I see something that is impacting another person's joy, it's impacting some the glory of God, and the good of others. It's having impacts on more than just me. That love does not avoid the subject waiting for someone else or some time else. It doesn't assume it is someone else's job. Rather, love takes the responsibility for helping another to grow and is willing to risk discomfort, even conflict along the way. And if I can just implore you as one of the elders here, this makes the task of church discipline so much easier church discipline is this category in the Bible in which all of us are helping one another to pursue Christ. There's a very positive ways in which we're encouraging and building one another up and stirring each other on to perseverance. And then there's the hard stuff, the uncomfortable conversations, especially the stuff that ends up in my office with the other elders. That's the really messy stuff, the stuff that, that no one wants to have, the conversations no one wants to have, and sometimes come with real ugly and hard consequences. Friends, I have to tell you, these kind of warning relationships make those conversations less frequent. So often, the really messy situations, the really heartbreaking ones, could have been avoided if the Christians around the person had just been a little more courageous to call out the gossip, to ask questions about their sex life, to shine a light on the destructive teaching the person had become so passionate about. And then, to offer themselves in whatever ways they could help. Let me ask you, friends, honestly, don't you wish you had a friend like this? That's an uncomfortable friendship to be in, but don't you wish you had a friend who would demonst- who'd be so committed to you, co- so committed to your joy, you becoming a better person, that they would demonstrate that kind of patience, humility, and courage, even if it cost them? Friends, instead of waiting For that kind of friendship to find you, could God be inviting you to be this kind of friend to someone else? After all, it isn't the music or the kids' ministry or the pastor's personality, thank God, that build a healthy church. It is this kind of teaching and warning with all wisdom, and it takes all of us. Now let's consider our third question, why risk it? After all, why would we risk these kind of relationships, relationships which would require me to open up my life, my calendar, sometimes even my checkbook? Well, perhaps it would be helpful to think of disciple-making as uh, like parenting. Again, it's easy for me to make these connections. I realize some of us aren't in that stage of life. I just, that's a lot of what Grace and I am thinking about. But parenting so often feels like it's lived uh, one day at a time. I said this uh when I had three kids, even more so now with four, but parenting at this stage when our kids are all young can boil down some days to just survival. Making sure that our kids are surviving uh, another day, even if that comes with a little bit too much Disney Plus and mac and cheese for the 15th time this week. Uh, Not that that's our home. But there are moments with no fights um, and no uh, bottoms to wipe or fires to put out when Grace and I are able to sit with one another and talk about how much we want for our kids. What kind of adults we hope our kids turn out to be someday. What can get so lost in the day-to-day is that we are right now, with our kids, raising adults. We aren't just trying to keep our kids alive or even get them through these years without too many broken bones and heartache. We are raising adults. Adults we pray love Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, And this goal turns out to have tremendous implications on our everyday, or at least it should. Now, we rarely do this perfectly, but knowing what we want for our kids informs how we live and speak to them on a daily basis, the kind of priorities and routines that we set up as a family, how I help them right now grow up into the kind of adults we hope they will be. Knowing what we want for our kids, in other words, in the future, changes the way that we live right now. Now, what does God say that we should want for one another? Paul puts it this way, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, Paul says, maturity. The word means something like an undivided heart, wholehearted dependence upon Christ. Maturity is not just, well, I'm more mature than that person. It's a goal that's even bigger than that. That my whole life would be devoted to Christ. That is what he longs for at the end of all of this, to present over to Jesus a heart fully devoted to him, a heart that's truly mature. But did you notice Paul doesn't say that his goal is that he might have this kind of heart, that he might present himself this way, although that is certainly true. No, his goal is that his fellow Christians, fellow believers might have this kind of heart, that he might present others as mature in Christ. Friends, this gets at the fact that the Christian life is not a life lived in isolation. It's not meant to be. When you confess faith in Jesus Christ, you also confess commitment to his people as they make that same commitment to you. It's one of the symbols in the Lord's Supper, actually. A meal— that God's people take together. And I have to warn you, some of us, we take the Lord's Supper weekly, praise God here, but we take it not wanting to commit to one another. And I have to warn you when that come, when, if you come with that kind of posture. Lord's Supper is symbolizing, yes, we've committed to God as Lord and Savior, and bound up with that is a sacrificial, rich commitment to fellow believers, and ownership that I want to help to present them mature in Christ. I realize it's hard for us to comprehend this in our individualistic culture, but according to the Bible, a Christian takes responsibility for other Christians. The Christian life means that I care about someone else's spiritual health just as much as I care about my own. In other words, maturity is not a goal we arrive at separately. It is a goal we arrive at together And where another believer is struggling, we take it upon ourselves to help. This means we take the initiative. Talk about practical implications. We don't wait around for others to ask if this is true. We take it upon ourselves to pursue. I can't tell you how many lonely people I have met who are just waiting for someone to engage them, to pursue them. How many people end up moving on from the churches I have been a part of, not always as a pastor, who said, you know, I never really could connect at this church. I never really found friendships. And the next question usually is, is what did you do to pursue them, to be that kind of friend to someone else? Friends, if this is true, we have the responsibility to take the initiative. Again, if the gospel is our standard, was Christ waiting for us to take the initiative when we, to pursue him before he showed us his grace? No. Friends, what would happen if we stopped waiting and took the responsibility upon ourselves to have these kind of relationships? And not just with people we are already friends with, After all, I fear we get into routines, even in the church, or perhaps especially, we form little circles of friends we don't want to disrupt, often without really growing in maturity with those friends, ironically. Meanwhile, leaving so many behind, not letting them in that inner circle, because I already have mine. It's on their responsibility to find their own. Friends, whose responsibility is it to pursue the lost and straying sheep? Well, in light of Christ's example, it is yours and mine. How should you get started? Well, let me first say don't wait for permission to be given. I am giving you permission right now to pursue someone else. Take the personal initiative to try and work out a discipling kind of relationship with another member of your same gender, I need to point out. Uh, Show up early on Sunday mornings, stick around late. Start getting to know uh, other people. Start calling people throughout the week, asking how you can pray. So far as you're comfortable, share a meal together as far as it's wise during this crazy time. You might find that discipleship happens more naturally than you think. And then find a way to make that more intentional and regular. If you're stuck, let me encourage you to reach out to your pastors and elders. We love to help in these kind of things. We want to see you grow as disciples. Larry, John, and I would love to help you take your next steps in this. Of course, these kind of relationships start out small. It starts with sharing a cup of tea or meeting up with someone at the grocery store or grabbing a book in the lobby and inviting someone to study it with you. We can hardly do this for everyone, of course, at least in some way, and not in the same way. I mean, we're not superheroes, but this should take place with someone. It may not take place with everyone, but it should take place with someone. Let me ask you, Are you opening your life up to one another in these ways? Are you personally invested in anyone else's spiritual growth? Who's invested in yours? And if you're not, what's holding you back? Which leads to our final question. How is any of this possible? There's so many more things we could say, friends. I know many of us come here with baggage, with plenty of fears and and hesitations, about getting invested in another person's life, especially when those people have hurt us before. The cost is real. It's no wonder that Paul calls it toil. Do you know the word actually could be translated as agony? You ever been in a relationship that feels sometimes like agony straight up? These kind of relationships in which you take responsibility for another person's growth and maturity, they take perseverance and patience and a whole lot of self-sacrifice. People are messy. I mean, right? Can I get an amen? Our people are messy and we're messy, right? We the task isn't done then until we present everyone as mature in Christ. This is a high bar. And yet, even as it is a genuine struggle, notice what Paul says in verse 29. Whose strength is this all dependent upon? For this I toil, he says. Verse 29, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Who is this he? The same he, all of this is in light of, the same one who is the, one, the resurrection from the dead, the one who, has the, who is the head of the church, the one who is the firstborn. Paul ends where he started. He begins with Jesus as the point of disciple-making, and now he returns to Jesus as the power for disciple-making. You see, in a sense... It is Jesus himself who makes disciples. He's the one who's most committed to it. And even as he has entrusted us with this kind of mission, he provides what he requires for it to take place. As we said last week, he bids me fly and gives me wings. But this isn't just a comfort, it's a promise. And this is where I want to leave us for today, is that many of us long I met many of us, and it includes me, long to experience God's power in our lives, don't we? We want to experience God in a a real, authentic way. You want to experience God's power? You want to see him work through you to really influence people? You want to experience God? Labor in making disciples. There's the promise here. God himself will pour out his power into that relationship, changing you along the way as well. So when it comes down to it, The reason you and I avoid these kind of relationships isn't really because we doubt ourselves, but because we doubt him. We doubt that he could use someone as weak as me, but isn't this the business God is in? Isn't using weak people the way that God brings himself the most glory? Isn't this the kind of church that you want? Don't underestimate your role in this, the impact on someone else's growth and maturity that God could really produce through you. This is what makes Christian relationships fundamentally different than the kind of friendships we have outside of the church. There's a different kind of sticking power to them and an even greater reason to persist in them. And the only reason we give this kind of love to one another that costs much when it comes down to it is because Jesus loved us first. What's the example we have in him? Jesus took the responsibility for our joy our maturity on himself. He went so far as to serve us and to lay aside all of his rights, serving us even unto death, that we might be presented to God better than we are as new creatures who will look one day a lot like him. Teaching and warning, proclaiming Christ. Would you join me in laboring For this by his power, friends. Do you want to experience the kind of church where God really shows up? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as those who want to make these kind of disciples. We want to open ourselves up to believers in this way, but we bear all sorts of baggage and hesitations and fears. The only thing that will silence all of those things is the the gospel. We pray that it would today, as we reflect on how you're asking us to obey I pray that we would reflect even more fully on the love that's been demonstrated to us by Christ, the initiative he took, the ownership he had, the lengths he went, and the same power he has made available so that we might respond to the gospel by applying it to another's life, by taking a risk, by looking out for someone else other than myself. We need a lot more of that right now, Lord, if, if the church really is to stand out as light in the world. And I pray that you might help me as I seek to obey these things as well. Pray all this in light of the example, the power, and the assurance of Jesus Christ. Amen.